Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. And welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How are you this afternoon, Chris? I'm great. How are you, Eric? <laughs> I like how you said it. I'm great. <laughs> you're not going to convince convince the uh, faithful listeners that we're as great as we think um today i think we're we're going to talk a little bit more about uh what you described as the uh ai wars happening uh with all these chatbots and all the competitors even since last month when we recorded and we talked mostly about chat gpt and the uh moral panic that has ensued, particularly in education as a result of its launch and the concerns about high-tech plagiarism, as the revered Noam Chomsky calls it. Um, now we're starting to see the real battle. So did you want to, you found most of the stuff today. So did you want to kick us off and kind of, we can uh, dive into that? Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, with this, um, we talked about uh, uh, chat GPT. We talked about uh, Microsoft making a big push. Well, uh, this happened uh, a couple of weeks ago um, where Google, they launched their AI chatbot, uh, which they're calling Bard, and it made a factual error in its uh, first demo. And uh, that day, I believe it lost $100 million off of the, its valuation uh, just because of the, the, the demo failing, which uh, I so don't can know. I, how... Can I interject? Yeah very quickly so there's another podcast i listen to which is politics and i delve into some of the borderline conspiracy stuff and it's pretty it's very funny it's called no agenda and they call it google barf <laughs> <It's bad>. <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was really funny so no That's agenda funny. podcast they, they they call it google barf <laughs> i just wanted to throw that in there <laughs> yeah well you know it's a I recall like back, uh, I'll tell you, uh, so this was in Calgary, uh, IBM was doing a, a demo of its uh, Watson AI platform. And this was like, I think 2017 at the Hyatt. So imagine you're at the Hyatt and they booked the entire ballroom there uh, to go and showcase how this technology is going to revolutionize everything. And it didn't work. It was it was so funny because the, the person, one of the things, because it was, they were trying to train it prior to this and so uh, by using the information and and uh, in fact what happened was the person who was training it had a british accent and so it wasn't oh, recognizing the uh, you know canadian accents or whatever and so that individual had to go and talk to it and that, that was the only way it was going to work but you would have thought that they would have figured that out before doing the demo and in this case it's a uh, Kind of a similar situation with uh, Google going and you know having this huge, you know, blunder uh, live while they were going and doing this uh, Bard demo. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why you would do a live demo. Um, uh, wouldn't you do a demo with? I mean, maybe they did do this and it, it still didn't work with something that is likely to give known quality answers. I mean, I always remember the days when they did tech demos. I mean, I don't know if you know, remember the story, but like when the iPhone was being demoed, it was not ready for production when they did the demo on stage. So they had a couple of these barely function. They didn't have the chips and the memory to be able to handle the multitasking, right? So it was like border redlining the hardware. So basically they were just terrified, the engineers, that it was super scripted what Steve Jobs was supposed to choose. And he did go off script a couple of times and people were just like terrified that he would flip out at them. And the, this, the story is that the people in the front row were the engineers who built it. And every time he did something on the script, they took a shot. So they were just like hammered. Uh, they were just terrified that it would just fail. And so I think about an AI and the chances of it going rogue seem pretty high. And, you know, Microsoft already has a bad reputation for this. When they did that Twitter AI uh, several years ago, it just went insane. People trained it to be like crazy. And so wouldn't you do this with an answer that you knew would work? Like, wouldn't you like fact check it? I mean, because it's, 
Like why take a risk and then blow it? I don't understand. Yeah, totally. Or even like, you know, uh, during the pandemic now, even with these Apple events, they're not even live, are they? They, they pre-recorded them and then released them out there. So they are, I think that's in well, in my honest opinion, I think that's better personally. I think the, uh, uh, my, my personal opinion is that, um, the, uh, the pre-recorded stuff is to the point yeah and there's not like you know the the mandatory uh ongoing claps and and all that stuff like it just seems better the production quality is so much better yeah, totally than the live events there's like I, I mean i just don't understand why i can see the advantage of live for some things and i'm not here to critique you know their presentation style and stuff like that but i just think about this and i go well like is this really um like wise, I suppose is the way I'm going to put it to not only release an, an AI that's uh, release it in a somewhat premature fashion, but then also to uh, do it, do it in front of people. Yeah. Like why not do a pre-recording where you got it to try multiple times until it got something reasonable. I mean, it made, this is the, the error it made was, was it something about a telescope from space? Yeah, I believe so. It said that the, it was the, uh, what did they say? A gift showed by Google shows Bard answering the question. This is from The Verge. What new discovery from the James Webb Space Telescope can I tell about my nine-year-old? Which is a strangely worded question. Anyways. Bard offered three bullet points in return, including one that states the telescope took the very first pictures of a planet outside our own solar system. And of course, that's that was incorrect. Uh, and the first image of that was done in 2004, which was which was well before then. And so I find it amazing that like they didn't realize that with the internet, every single person on Earth is going to see this answer and start like fact-checking it. Yeah, yeah exactly. What do you make of of this? So, I mean, you you post, you pulled most of the articles on this, yeah. and then they were all really excellent. Like, what do you make so that we have this big flub? So Google Barf, as I'm going to call it, doesn't <laughs> seem to be. Uh, I just I just think that's really funny. It, it's working okay. You got another interview from The Verge. It was with Satya Nadella. What did you? So he's the CEO of Microsoft. What did you make yeah, of that? I mean that that interview. I mean I. I've never really paid too much attention to uh, Satya, but I mean, uh, his responses, they were brilliant. I mean, uh, I like the the big quote that he made in there. He referred to Google as the 800 pound gorilla in search. And, uh, you know, Satya, he, he was talking about how uh, at least he wants Microsoft to be known to have made Google dance with their new chatbot, the new Bing. And, uh, you know, as far as uh, competition is concerned, uh, you know, again, yeah, Google has been the 800 pound gorilla and it's up to them to go and defend their territory. I mean, it, yeah, it was interesting even how he mentioned about margin and, uh, you know, uh, Bing makes a very small percentage of the overall search mar market. And so even if they go and take... Oh yeah, 10% or something? Yeah, like if, even if they claw away even a couple of percent, it's going to be a major impact on um on uh, microsoft's like uh bottom line so uh but yeah i mean i i would highly recommend we're going to include it in the show notes but th that video was probably one of the best videos i've seen uh now i can see why you know satya they put him in place at, uh, at microsoft i mean his responses uh i'm assuming that they were unrehearsed uh, like they were just yeah really I, didn't, I don't think so well, they may have had some idea of the questions ahead of time. I, the Verge is a pretty big blog. I did, I did find it interesting that he kind of avoided one of the questions, which was kind of this idea of a feedback loop. Um, so who is the interviewer? Was it Neelai Patel? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Neelai is one of the founders, I think, of The Verge, or he's been there forever. Um, he had a question that said... Uh, I'm just scrolling to it. I am eager for there to be more competition and search. What I'm curious about is this, if more and more people are producing more and more AI content, and that becomes the base layer 
that you're training against. So if instead of me writing a story about the Chinese spy balloon, I ask Bing to write such a story and, and that gets fed back into Bing, eventually the amount of original content in the ecosystem begins to wither. Uh, is that a feedback loop that you're worried about? Now, Satya Nadella said that, and his response was kind of saying that like, well, you know, AI should be more like a co-pilot, like you're doing this stuff and you're asking it to give feedback, kind of like peer feedback, except if you don't have peer back, you have this robot. But it is an interesting point. Um, you know, if everybody starts writing AI generated stuff and then content becomes AI generated. And then now when you ask AI to generate content, it's generating it based on AI generated content and on and on. What does that do? Yeah. Does it become super generic? Yeah. It's an interesting yeah, question. No, it was a good question for sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, further to that, the, the next article that I, I found, it was already like, so now uh, apparently there's a couple of million people that are on uh, Bing's um, a wait list. And so there's about a million people using uh, the new Bing AI chatbot and already it's uh, insulting and gaslighting users. So, uh, What was sad, right? I mean, didn't it say, oh my goodness gracious, already insulting and gaslighting people, but it was, it said it was sad. Um, it, it felt like it was being controlled someone it was able to coax it into saying it would make a deadly virus and steal the nuclear codes and stuff like this. I mean, I was just out of control. I don't know if that was in the article you sent, but I saw that somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they prompted it to say these things, but oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of terrifying because we, do we really know how it works? Well, I mean, nobody really knows how it works. And I, I, I think it's interesting even with, um, there was that documentary with coded bias where they were talking yeah, about the, that was a good documentary. Uh, and so, I mean, again, I, I would highly recommend people watch that uh, as well, but um, a lot of the things that were identified uh, in there, um, it's the same type of bias that's, uh, that's coming uh, forward. So, I mean, uh, in terms of the bots being racist and, and uh, the, uh, the underlying algorithm that's being developed. And so, um, you know, uh, again, it's uh, some people have brought out that uh, these uh, kind of gender-based uh, inequalities have been uh, uh, shown in some of the searches that um, uh, this uh, new Bing is offering. Yeah, it seems to me uh, half-baked. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting it won't get better. So that's why I felt last time it was a bit of a moral panic because they're like, it, it's going to take over. And I'm like, well, maybe at some point we, it'll be more accurate. But right now you really have to watch it because the answers it gives are dubious at best. Uh, it was interesting that Elon Musk, who was a lot of people don't know, was what, one of the people who started OpenAI. I don't know if he still owns a piece of it. Does he? Uh, well, he's he is distancing himself from it, but I mean, I would imagine like he's, he created open AI as a not-for-profit. And so that's where, you know, uh, this other article that we're including is that, um, you know, this wasn't his original intention. He saw that AI could become one of the most devastating uh, parts of, uh, you know, biggest risks for, to civilization. And uh, so that's why he wanted to, and that's why the name is open AI is to create a nonprofit uh, company to counterweight Google. And now essentially it's being controlled yeah. by Microsoft. Yeah, that's what he said. He said. You basically encapsulated it well, that it's you know a partially private money raising company that's controlled by Microsoft. And he says the risks are akin to harnessing the power of the atom. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens in the future, but it's, uh, it's definitely, um, you know, it's a new kind of, uh, cold war with the, this artificial intelligence and, uh, yeah, it'll be. Except, except like who's the least incompetent is kind of the way <laughs> yeah, I describe yeah, it because they they keep making these outrageous. So it seems like chatbot GPT, um, has made the least embarrassing errors so far, ironically. It seems like the more half-baked stuff has come from Google, though perhaps I'm misunderstanding that. Um, 
Yeah. And again, I mean, keep in mind too, I think we might've talked about this last uh, episode, but this is one of the biggest uh, issues for like how some people are thinking that Google's going and pushing this too quickly and they're rushing it. And as you kind of described it as being premature, I wouldn't be surprised if they already had this technology developed. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, projects that they're developing, but it goes back to that, um, what uh, Clayton Christensen refers to as the innovator's dilemma. Why would they go and disrupt themselves and uh, put out something that will impact the majority of their income, which is coming from search? And so, uh, you know, now... Search deals and ads basically is where they make like a hundred percent of them are 90 something percent of their money. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, if they uh, created the first quantum computer, there's all sorts of other experimental projects that they're working on. They probably were working on this. They just, you know, didn't see it in this way and getting open AI, uh, progressing to this level. And so they're now being a little bit reactive. And so that's where that gorilla is dancing a bit <laughs> so well and they it's the downside of being a big company right because it's like open ai being a not-for-profit who's getting basically startup money from microsoft can be like the expectation is a little lower here we go this is trained on data up to 2021 and go for it you know if google announces a product and it flops that has a much bigger impact because they are a publicly traded institution yeah and so that's the downside of getting large, the downside of scale. Now, Apple was smart to stay out of this stuff, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> well, who knows, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, even them, there's been uh, speculation for years now that they could cr- probably create their own search engine as well. And maybe they're even developing their own search engine. It could be. It could certainly be. Um, now we have a couple of things about education. So there was one, you had a couple of articles about this one from CNN about it's called chat GPT creator rolls out imperfect tool to help teachers spot uh, potential cheating. And then there was another one about NYU professors tell their students to not use chat GPT. And that was from, that was from vice. So what do you make of this? It was, it was kind of a strong stance that they took. Uh, basically the, uh, the NYU profs, they are completely, uh, preventing students from using chat GPT and uh, it would be considered plagiarism in on their side. Uh, you know, there are some people that are thinking that it could be a good tool. Um, but yeah, on their side there, they basically, uh, want to completely stop it from being used. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was interesting even in terms of this, um, there was some chat GPT, uh, check tools that are coming out. I mean, we talked about this uh, before too, uh, where, uh, I mean, I, I think we kind of predicted this, this would happen because the, because of that moral panic or what have you, but it's uh, akin to having like radar detectors uh, in the police force. And then on, you know, you go and um, have like radar jammers that everybody has and vice versa. It's a bit of a, a cat and a mouse kind of game that you have. But um, apparently the Turnitin service, they are projecting a 97% accuracy based off of ChatGPT, this AEI detection. There have been others that have come out uh, that have provided false positives. Um, ChatGPT itself has even provided a a ChatGPT detector as well. (laughs) Yeah, that one seemed to be pretty good. But I mean, perhaps I'm wrong. Um, Interesting that they would... So NYU would ban it. Um, well, I guess they can't ban it on their network. Though I've heard of other institutions doing that where they block it on their local campus network. Not that that stops anybody using it anywhere else. Uh, I just, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, they should, it seems better that they should just outline a policy being like, well, if you used this, like you were talking earlier about citation, I think that was your idea, yeah. right? Yeah, well, that's where so, I, mean, I think well, if you use it as a background reference, couldn't you say, well, like, you know, I, I did some, I tried to give them my keywords and I just wanted to get some background information on the source. I mean, you still have to read academic articles to write a paper. I mean, it's not that simple, right? But you still, could you just cite it and say, you know, I actually got the ball rolling using this tool and then I ran with that. Yeah. And that, assuming you don't hand in what it says. Well, and that's where I think we, we need to develop some type of, uh, 
uh, I don't know, formatting or some disclosures or what have you, like from a citation perspective, because I don't see anything wrong with using chat GPT, uh, especially as long as you're not going and just copying and pasting everything in there and the, you know, claiming that's your work. But if you go and acknowledge it, I mean, we did it last time, uh, you know, we created the show notes in like one minute, we're doing it again this and I've done them uh, again. And so, uh, and, uh, we're disclosing that it was generated by chat GPT by, uh, the prompts that we're using. So uh, I think that, you know, I, I don't know, in my mind, I look at chat GPT, it's almost like Wikipedia on steroids, it can help you uh, as a starting point, it can maybe help you with certain prompts. But uh, at the end of it, like we do know, because it's limited to that 2021 uh, data set that they have access to, that uh, it's not perfect and you're going to have to supplement uh, certain things. And so you would have to do that research. I mean, there's others we've come across. I mean, I've been sharing with you, there's, there's platforms that are coming out there that are claiming that if you pay for an essay, uh, they will go and have a unique essay with all the citations. But again, that's academic misconduct uh, that uh, you would be engaging in. So, um, uh, but as a tool, there should be a way that a student should be able to use it. I mean, personally, I've been using it and I've told you this, uh, Eric, the offline, but, you know, in our class, uh, it came up as a topic. And so we went through it. We took it for uh, my communication course and we showed how the scenarios, what we're learning in class and all the various approaches in terms of how to deal with uh, scenarios in the workplace, that ChatGPT was lackluster at best. And we critique the the piece of writing, you know, in class talking about what would we change? What things did it do well? And, you know, had more of a discussion that way. And uh, so again, I, I think you, you need to know the basis of uh, how you would do it. I mean, uh, funny enough, um, uh, earlier this week, so I had, cause, uh, uh, as much as maybe people don't realize, uh, so COVID is still around, uh, the flu is still around. There's a lot of people sick these days. And so I, I had a student that was um, that emailed me on a Tuesday, and just advised me that uh, the, this uh, individual was not going to be able to attend class. And so I, I tried uh, just to see because I, I wanted to be mindful, especially given the, some of the disclosures that was given. So I was getting ready for school, getting ready for work, and I, I thought, let me just draft something in ChatGPT to put together something decent as a response uh, back to this uh, inquiry or the, just this notification. And to I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, many times ChatGPT is down. And so that day was down, and uh, they are promoting their $20 a month service. So they want you to get onto the ChatGPT+. So I, I just out of curiosity, I thought I'd see because it, it would inform you if you put in your email address when the service would be back up. So I put it in. I never received an email, Eric. And so uh, it has gone up. Uh, it was live again, but uh, obviously there's a bit of a disconnect. But imagine if I was so reliant as a crutch on ChatGPT that I couldn't go and draft that email on my own. And now I have to go and spend $20 per month just to do this. I mean, it shouldn't get to that point. You should be able to do it on your own. And I mean, I drafted something together and put it off, but it, it's more so just something uh, to uh, help get the ball rolling, uh, get uh, get you to maybe think about things in a different way using the prompts. Uh, and uh, again, I, I would describe it as being like a what we had in accounting or finance. Uh, it's the equivalent of having a tool like a calculator or spreadsheet, you still need to know the basic underlying principles to be able to use these tools. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I get it. We can't run away from it. It's here now. Uh, we, we can't turn back the clock. I mean, we have to figure this out. I, I, this idea that we're going to, you know, ban it and close our eyes and move forward, this seems unlikely to succeed i suppose <laughs> i feel well, like we need to be like okay we have to deal with the reality that this is a thing now uh, well i mean what, what's our other option like i mean i guess uh, actually i did see you might have seen this video too where somebody took a, a chat gpt connected it to a 3d printer that uh, held a pencil and then it was writing handwritten notes 
from the chat GPT, uh, you know, uh, so funny <laughs> output or whatever. So, I mean, we could go back, back to handwritten submissions or maybe oral tests or something. I, I, I don't know, but is that really the, the step in the right direction? I mean, I, the nice thing that I found, I, I don't know if I ever want to go back to having, you know, let's say if we did have exams where you have the Scantron sheets, having the the online uh, system is so much better. It's so much more efficient. The students get their, you know, results back right away. You have uh, uh, less paper, less, just more efficiencies. I, I don't know why we would want to go back, but uh, I mean, that's what some I've, I've come across some people that are thinking that let's go back to having, you know, handwritten submissions and, uh, uh, you know, oral uh, kind of uh, testing or uh, assessments. Well, I, I don't, I'm not opposed to oral assessments and things like that. Um because we don't do that as much as we used to. And that's that in and of itself is a skill, the ability to articulate verbally, similar to doing a presentation, I, I think we could mix it up. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I can see people's point, the concern, especially written and, and plagiarism. I did have an interesting conversation with a colleague about writing and will this take away the motivation to write? And I said, well, that's a very different question than um, someone cheating so they can earn their degree. I mean, writing is required by all people who go through a four-year degree at some level, even if you do the hard sciences, lab reports is a form of, I would say everything is a form of creative writing. Um, so that's very different because you're required to get it done. So there's a pressure to get it done, whether you like it or not. So then that's where the cheating comes in. But when it comes to writing outside of requirements, so outside of the academy, I was, I said, I, I don't see how that's going to make a difference in terms of motivation. Either you like writing and that's your thing and you want to make a career where you get to write or you don't. I, I don't see, um, you know, Stephen King hanging up his hat and getting an AI to write books. I think he enjoys writing the books, which is why he does it. And so it's, it's strange to me that there's this fear that everything will just be generated um, by AI. I mean, I suppose if companies d demand that from their journalists or something, uh, that that's one thing, but a journalist person would want to write, or at least that's the assumption that I'm working with. Well, you would hope so, but even that, when we found out that there's been a lot of uh, articles that have been generated through AI and we just weren't aware of it. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works. That was an issue around CNET. They had a bunch of AI generated content. I assume that the clickbait articles are AI generated and then the really good stuff is human written. So it's like a kind of a side, you know, to bolster that kind of clickbait, the, the, the ad revenue thing. Um, but, but again, to me, that doesn't seem like a very long, a good long-term goal. Like that's not going to be super high quality content. Yeah. And again, right now, at least uh, from a creativity standpoint, I mean, if you want to go in and put together some engaging, captivating, you know, written work, you're going to need that personal human touch to it. I mean, uh, I've even seen uh, some of this AI generated like music, like it's, it's horrible so far. <laughs> from what I, I mean, just like, the, I mean, the images aren't bad, like the, uh, the Dolly uh, generated images, but the, the music was just, it was, it almost kind of was reminiscent of something like fifth element, uh, kind of, um, you know, yeah. sci-fi type of, you know, movies that you would come across. Yeah. Like this idea that it'll eliminate creativity. I just don't see that. I, I, one thing I do see though, there, there are a bunch of written tasks. So here's a, that don't really add a lot to my life. Um, I don't get any joy out of it. Uh, I don't get any better at it. I'll give you an example. So I, I sometimes do qualitative research. So I have, I end up with transcripts or written things that I have to go through with NVivo, which is a coding qualitative coding research tool. And I have to highlight them and assign a section of text to code. And then I have to look at all the codes and I have to group them into themes. And that's kind of the standard uh, grounded theory and other things and uh, thematic analysis for how you do an analysis of non-numeric data. It is drudgery. 
It's awful. It takes so long. I'm probably falling asleep as I'm doing it. So who knows what the quality of my coding is at any given time. I'm sure it decreases the ability to take uh, a data set like that and say, okay, look, can you, can you code this for me and then group it into themes? Um, I mean, obviously I'd want to see it. And then I may say, no, that's wrong. I put it over here, put it over here, but to speed this up. Another thing I would think about too, is that when you're doing from a research perspective, when you're working with textual data, the problem is it's hard to have a, uh, a statistically significant sample size of like, let's say you had a 1500 participant pool. Well, to have 1500 transcripts would be like impossible to code. I mean, you'd have mm -hmm. to have an army of people working for like a decade to organize this. I mean, what it allows us to do is kind of get statistically significant sample sizes for non-numeric data and to help us go through it. I mean, I don't learn anything from going through that stuff. It's, it's horrible. Um, so that, that there's an example where, oh, that would free up the ability, um, to look through this, you know, how many times per you per participant, did they mention this term and then we, that, that can be quantified, right? I mean, what's the most common response for this question? And it can kind of say, well, in general, people talked about this the most, that stuff to me is amazing. Um, because it, I still have the creative uh, aspect of writing the paper, but the, the drudgery is done. Yeah. We had a couple of other things that you put in. Um, well, what should we cover next? There was London school of economics had one. There was also some, we were going to talk about some predictions, what should we go? Well, with? maybe we'll, we can just, uh, quickly go through that. Um, uh, the London school of economics, uh, blog post, but it, basically the, the gist of it is that, uh, they want to go and outline especially i mean in europe they have a lot of uh, legislation in place but uh, what they're describing as privacy by design and so they are already thinking about just you know privacy first uh, it's uh, one of the the principles that they want to uh, put in place uh, from a guideline perspective and especially with uh, edtech it needs to be a lot more transparent uh, when you're de dealing with uh, uh, students and, uh, you know, private information, especially for the, the K to 12. Interesting. So how would that, yeah, that would impact kind of what, uh, perhaps what tools, uh, higher education would, uh, procure because we don't know where this data is going. This has been an ongoing issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and again, just, I think just clearly outlining how is that data going to be used? Like what, uh, you know, the consent, the third parties, uh, and, uh, who's held accountable. How are you going to look at the quality of the data? And so just embedding this privacy right into the design of the development of these, uh, various applications and technologies, uh, you know, that's what the, this blog post, I think they did a really nice job of even just visualizing how this could work, um, and some of the considerations. So I, I would encourage people to go and take a look at the, the article. Now, in terms of, in terms of predictions, how did you want to do this today? Cause we haven't, you're right. We didn't do our annual predictions at the beginning of the year yeah. for a bunch of reasons that <laughs> we won't go into. <laughs> well, I, I thought, uh, you know, since we didn't go through the, uh, the predictions that uh, we did come across, like there was a, a short little article which outlined the five top trends in uh, uh, education trends in 2023. And um, I mean, uh, we can just maybe go through systematically what they put together, which uh, obviously the first one we we have been mostly talking about this, which is the artificial yeah. intelligence. So I, I don't know if there's much more that we need to go and uh, get into, but uh, obviously this is the biggest uh, trend right now, the, the biggest, uh, impact. I mean, it's, it's been something, I, I don't know if, if it wasn't for Microsoft throwing in that $1 billion to fuel the fire uh, with open AI, uh, if we would have been to the level that we're at right now. And uh, now certainly when they're, they've taken, you know, put in, invested another 10 billion and taken 49% of open AI. And, uh, you know, again, I, I would highly encourage you to, 
watch that video with Satya, uh, that decoder podcast. Uh, it's a special episode, but uh, you know, the way that he explained how they're planning to integrate it in every facet and the partnership. Um, it was a really uh, interesting interview and conversation to uh, watch. Yeah, it, it was really good. I mean, that's, that's the thing from the show notes that people should definitely follow up on. It's interesting that Forbes, which has this, I'm going to take Forbes with a grain of salt, their top five ed tech trends, they kind of group AI and privacy into one because they also talk about monitoring, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that look at facial expressions to see if people are paying attention. I know that this has come up in, in institutions before, like even security cameras that use our AI to determine people's gait, so their walk, so they can identify who is whom, uh, which is kind of creepy. And so I, I think. AI, the privacy is kind of, it's difficult to separate them out. So I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty safe prediction that this will be a continued moral panic, as I call it, as things go on. The remote online and hybrid learning. I I don't, I actually am not um, on top of this as much. I know that there's lots of, uh, I guess, I suppose it depends on how you define this. I mean, it talks about MOOC. massively open online courses that talks about micro learning private companies like Coursera and Udemy though they've been part of Coursera also does partnerships with higher education um they also talk about edX which I thought was going away that was the collaboration with Harvard wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. And some other institutions so isn't it disappearing? I think it was so that kind of wasn't it Harvard and MIT I believe yeah, I thought there was, we have covered this in the past. Um, so what do you make of online learning? Like, is this, are things going back more to face-to-face or universities trying to return? Or is this going to just be kind of a solo thing that builds? We had, of course, everybody doing online yep. and now uh, that's pulled back a bit. Perhaps people have screen fatigue, which I fully sympathize with. Yeah. What do you expect to happen? Well, you know, it's interesting because here at, uh, I was uh, asked about this. So at uh, Mount Royal University, where both of us, uh, we um, work and um, uh, my chair actually asked about this. Is there uh, a need or interest in going and doing hybrid delivery? And so we're going to experiment this upcoming year, this uh, so fall 2023, uh, winter 2024, we're going to be offering one section that it will be hybrid. And so in, in that section, what will happen, this is uh, for one course that I teach, which is uh, business communications. And it's a mandatory course for the uh, the people taking a, doing a degree in business or in the business uh, computer information or um, yeah, business, uh, or no, the Bachelor of Computer Information Systems. Uh, but uh, with, uh, with that course, we're offering one course that will be online with the exception at the end, and this is where the hybrid will come in, is uh, we're going to do the presentation in person. So they'll be completely doing everything online. Uh, it'll be up to the instructor uh, in terms of whether they want to do asynchronous or synchronous. And I, I think my section, I'll probably do mostly synchronous, just given the time and it's easier uh, I mean, who knows, maybe if I get motivated uh, this summer, maybe I'll record a bunch of content or something. But, um, you know, uh, it is something that uh, I think people are asking for. I mean, I talked to some of my students uh, last year. This was, um, and you know, it happened during spring semester. And apparently, even MRU, we're going to have now a summer semester as well. And there's going to be more offerings. I'm, I'm not sure what that'll look like, but that's what I've heard. But with the spring semester, it was funny, I had a face-to-face class and uh, then we had so many people on the um, wait list that we decided to open up another section which we did offered it through online delivery and many of the students from my face-to-face transferred over to the online and so then I asked some of the students why they did that and really it came down to students wanting to be able to work and have that flexibility or maybe spend time at their family cabin and not being tied down. And so there was a number of things, but it, it really, it comes down to having that flexibility uh, and, uh, you know, whether they need to earn an income or, you know, want to spend uh, some downtime, but still get some of their, uh, you know, coursework in. So again, I, I, from academia, like especially higher ed standpoint, 
we will have to adapt. I know for like another university here in Alberta, University of Lethbridge, they offer many of their courses in the evening time and also on weekends and have online delivery. And part of it is their particular demographic that they're serving are working professionals who maybe didn't have a chance to go and complete a degree. And so they're doing that. Um, recently, I just saw an, um, a presentation from Royal Roads uh, where there was a, a fact, a, well, a former staff member and now has uh, become faculty at uh, Royal Roads where they have a two-year uh, bachelor in business. Uh, I think it might be a bachelor of management, but it was meant for people who you know, maybe are in the army or athletes. And, and so I, I found it really fascinating that they uh, have this like cohort model, smaller classes. Uh, but again, you have to adapt to what people want, what uh, the students want and the, the current needs, right? I mean, I, I haven't revealed this. I, I was always, I mean, I've talked to you about it. I mean, I, I can appreciate even, the, you know, even the ability to, oh, I would love to come into class um, or, you know, use a university facility this day, but this day I don't want to, just the ability to change, um, you know, where I'm sitting or to move things around, it hurts, you know, it's uncomfortable being stuck in one place. So I can appreciate the flexibility um, to want to move around. And also at the time of the courses, I mean, like I wanted to take more education. I've always been interested, as you know, in usability and user experience design. I'm not a designer. And I was like, oh, I'd like to take some courses in that. So I chose, I'm taking one now through BCIT. And people said, why did you choose BCIT? And I said, well, I did some research on it. I mean, people, people on Reddit and students said they were very happy with it. Uh, it seems really good quality. It's, li it's live synchronous online lectures. So it's not asynchronous, but they're really well done. All sorts of asynchronous material. Um, their video conferencing system, Bongo, that they're using is dynamite. I mean, it just never goes down. It seems really solid, but it's just, again, it's an evening course on a Tuesday. It's super flexible. Um, it just works better. Like it, there's a lower opportunity cost. Yeah. And I mean, it's the same reason that people, and then, you know, the idea that, you know, some, there may be semesters or time periods where people want to take an in-person course. I can, I can see, I, I've actually talked to students and been like, you know, for some courses I would, you know, oh, next semester, maybe they have their own business. So they, or they work, they're like, you know, this is a busy semester or work for me if I'm working and going to school. This is the semester I want to be able to have more flexibility. And it's during the slow periods that I would like to come in and get some in-person learning. So they want to be able to pick and choose, right? Like in the winter, that's when our busy season is. So we want online or hybrid. And then in the summer, our business is slow, or maybe we're not doing a whole lot. Then I could come to campus and that's a nice way to switch it up. There is something to be said about variety um, in delivery um, that not only benefits the person taking it, uh, because it's flexible in terms of time, but also benefits their, uh, their, their learning practice. Is that a good way to describe it? I mean, you have to, you get better at following along in an online course if you've tried it right. And a lot of professional development post post-secondary or higher education is going to be kind of like that. So it seems like taking an online course or a hybrid course is, is, a, is a good experience because uh, it'll prime you for further professional development. Yeah. Well, and to think about it, like now, especially with uh, so many people working remotely or hybrid working, at least uh, even having some of these courses, it makes sense uh, for them to practice while in school, how you would interface with people and work with people and uh, even just uh, accustom or uh, learn a little bit more about uh, the technology and how you could go and use it. Yeah, I, I agree. Now there is a prediction from Forbes, uh, virtual and augmented reality. Uh, they say that virtual reality, VR and augmented reality, AR are two forms of extended reality, XR, extended reality, that's an Orwellian term, uh, that are becoming increasingly important within educational ecosystems. I don't know about this. I, I think I don't think it's going to go away. I don't know that it's increasingly important. In fact, I, I sometimes wonder if it's taken a step back. Um, there was a big interest in VR and AR. Uh, that, for instance, there's a group 
called educators in in VR, um, and they meet using this online platform called um, oh geez, I'm forgetting the name of it. Altspace. Yeah. Altspace was a, and of course that was bought by Microsoft. Altspace is getting shut down. Oh really? Wow. And so that's a major platform. I, I don't know of a really good alternative. Um, so I don't think it's going open source. So I mean. It, I'm wondering if this AR, VR, yeah, Microsoft is sunsetting social VR pioneer alt space. This was tech tech crunch. This was January 21st of last month reported this. I mean, they bought it in like 2017. It's a great platform. It's really easy to use. There's a lot of tools. It's gotten a lot better over the years, but it's sunsetting. And I, you know, in the tech news cycle, you hear these rumors that for this forever rumor that Apple's going to release release a VR headset. Um, I, so here's what I think about this. I don't know if you feel this way. It's better to converse with people. It's more lifelike in a virtual conference to use VR than it is at all to be on Zoom. And it's it's a great gaming platform. It's really immersive if you're gaming into VR. I'm not. Um, but I just, I have a hard time seeing the long-term use cases outside of those two things. Yeah, There's some I mean, serious I, downsides to virtual reality. Some people just can't do it. Like, I mean, it just doesn't work for about, I've heard upwards of 10% of the population or get too much motion sickness. And there's not really a solution because it's kind of like an eye tracking issue. Augmented reality is different, obviously, because it's like a physical overlay. That's like, you know, the Google Glass is more like augmented reality. And yeah. so that I can understand. But that doesn't really have a lot of educational applications right now. That's more of like uh, concept videos. Like I'm wearing my smart glasses. I don't remember Chris's name because I know so many people. And then his name pops up and I can pretend to remember him, which I find incredibly superficial and terrible. <laughs> I, I, I've seen these like crazy demos. Um, I just, I think it's interesting technology. I wonder if it, it's a little bit overhyped. Yeah. Well, and I think the only place that I've seen it work really well is uh, in the healthcare medical space where people are right. maybe yeah. practicing for surgery or something. And I, I know here at the University sure. of Calgary, many projects they've experimented with that and it's worked really well. That makes perfect sense. Dentistry. Um, there's all sorts of like, uh, uh, physical skills that are really good to practice before you go on to practice on people. You're better by the time you work with people. So I totally see the application. And so I see it growing in those areas, but I guess I just don't see it as a mainstream adoption everywhere. There's certain use cases where it works and there's certain use cases where I don't see it ever working. Yeah. Well, and it's expensive too, right? To go and develop these uh, apps, these platforms, uh, whether it's VR or AR. I mean, I, I bet you probably AR is maybe a little bit uh, less expensive than VR, uh, but uh, maybe, yeah. still it's uh, it's not the... Uh, I would look at uh, that use case. I mean, in this article, they basically are talking about places where you uh, wouldn't be able to access. Uh, so whether it's from an architecture standpoint or historical sites or hazardous environments, and then they do mention healthcare as well. But I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, we've, and we've also done an interview uh, with uh, the first ever course in uh, VR uh, here that was uh, at Mount Royal University. Tony Chastain did that. He was one of the first in Canada, yeah, exactly. if not the first. Yeah. yeah, he's a good colleague of mine. So I'm be kind of I haven't talked to him about how it's going to affect. <laughs> I should see how it's going to affect uh, alt space being shut down. Yeah. But yeah, it, it to be continued. I, I'm a little bit less sanguine on um, on VR and AR, I suppose, than than some folks. I, I think it, I, I think it's just not there yet. Yeah. Uh, there's also, of course, they talk about soft skills in STEM. This is another prediction from Forbes. Uh, that's like predicting that people will need education. I mean, I don't know that soft skills were ever not in demand. You could say that they're more so now that hard technical skills are being replaced. I don't know that I agree with that. Um, I just think it's an ongoing thing, soft skills, like perhaps they were ignored in some fields. Um, and so they're being more purposefully integrated, perhaps in healthcare. 
and stuff like that, where it was more uh, science focused. I mean, now they have to cover both. But if you were a social science or humanities major like I was, I mean, that's kind of built in a little bit more, perhaps. I don't really see that as being a revelatory prediction. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, this is something that uh, uh, for all those people who think that AI or, uh, you know, these technologies are going to replace us. I mean, that's, these are things that the, you, these soft skills, you'll never probably be able to replace. And well, who knows? I mean, I should never say never, but, uh, but these are important skills and they've been identified previously uh, by, um, uh, I believe it was uh, the World Economic Forum, where they mentioned that all of these skills, uh, they would be the top skills that people need in 2025. And we're, we're getting closer to that. And I don't see it even after 2025, people will still need, you know, critical thinking and creativity and uh, interpersonal uh, skills, communication skills, problem solving, like these are all things that that you need to just to do well in, in life. Right. So. Yeah. Whether we can teach them or not effectively is a different thing. We can measure the outcomes. That's a difficult teaching. Critical thinking is surprisingly difficult. Uh, there's some really good scholarship on that. Uh, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say today. Is there anything else you want to add? No, nope, Chris, no. I don't have any tech things. I'm still working on our tools from our last episode. So I have not reported back yet. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so, but it's been nice just going through uh, this uh, ever uh, expanding area of AI and uh, just looking at some of the things that are impacting us uh, in the education sector. I agree. Uh, with that, so where can people uh, find out how to contact you? Yeah, so easiest thing, I have my personal website. It's uh, Chris with a K, so K-R-I-S. H A N S dot C A, and uh, you'll find my contact info and socials there. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can find me at uh, ericchristensen.net, so E R I K C H R I S T I A N S E N dot net, uh, ericchristensen.org and dot C A, also forward to the same address. I've bought them. I still don't have that dot com, but I'm going to get it someday. <laughs> somebody out there isn't using it to their fullest potential um and yeah so you can contact me uh i'm trying to think if there's anything new i'm building a new blog so perhaps i'll discuss that when it's ready to when it's ready to go awesome okay well take care yeah, chris you too. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.